Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to my podcast, Stephen Sully Study. I'm here at Woodbury House. I've got a fantastic guest in front of me, Ben Iron. Welcome, very uh, welcome to the show, mate. Thank you very much for your time. Boom. <laughs> we're right. in Soho. We're in Soho. Don't come here very often. I actually saw you was here. I think about a week or so ago. I think <laughs> you went to another uh, establishment near, nearby. I think I saw you on uh, social media, and I was going to ask you: Do you actually come around Soho a, a lot and do any paintings? No, like, I used to paint around here a lot, like, when we were kids, just, like, tagging stuff and, and stuff. Uh, but they've kind of got, like, this zero-tolerance policy towards graffiti and street art. Yeah. And also, it's like, like, I believe that street art should be in poorer communities and areas where they need an injection of colour and... Soho doesn't need an injection of colour. Yeah. So yeah, I'd rather I'd rather paint in areas that need it rather than. I actually saw an interview with you uh, earlier. I was doing a bit of research, of course, which I do all the time with my guests. And um, you said something quite profound, which which made a lot of sense. You said um, graffiti needs to be, or street art needs to be on the streets quite naturally, but some of it shouldn't need permission. What did yeah. you mean by that? So. If I find a wall that I want to paint and, you know, it's kind of changed because nowadays people like email me and say, we've got a wall where you want to paint it, blah, 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 we give you some money. But like, if I find a wall that I want to paint, I work out how easy it is to paint that wall. Yeah. So the easy route would be find out who owns it, <laughs> approach them, send them a, you know, a thing of the stuff that I do and ask them if they'll give me permission to paint the wall. Right. And sometimes you can't find out who owns the wall because it's like blah, blah, nonsense. So then you work out that it's easier to paint it with a high-vis jacket on and some wet painter's tape and just do it broad as bass in the daytime without permission. Yeah. And, you know, graffiti and street art to some degree is about the art of getting over. Yeah. It's about the art of getting your name up or your message up in places that aren't always accommodating and allow you to do that. Yeah. And I think that's the difference between artists that get up and commercial artists that work for global street art or whatever, or advertising. You know, it's, it's the art of getting over. And by hook or by crook, you'll work out a way where... If you've got a wall and you want to paint it, you'll work out how to paint it. Whether that's get permission, get sponsorship, or just do it. Yeah. And hopefully don't get nicked. Um, so uh, slightly linked to that kind of mindset, I before I got into art, I was I was in sales. I still really am, am in sales because I think if you're promoting art and you're doing events and you're doing shows and you've got a system or any kind of product, you you are in sales effectively. Dude, I'm in sales. E exactly. And <laughs> and um, when I got into sales and there was like mentors, coaches, and also like bosses and managers, the whole philosophy was do whatever it takes. Now, what they meant by that is to become a good salesperson, you've got to have a the mentality of being being a successful person. Yeah. So going back to what you were just saying, getting a wall, doing your your art, your graffiti, your text, it was almost that same mindset. Do whatever it takes, whether it was down yeah. the route of getting permission, maybe maybe not getting permission, getting sponsored, getting endorsed, whatever. Is that kind of the mindset you've carried through your life? 
Yeah, completely. It's like, you know, like I started in this game through doing graffiti. And graffiti is write your name in as many places as you possibly can in the hottest places. I'm just going to move that slightly forward. Yeah, in the the most dangerous places, in the places that no one else can do it. And write it over and over and over again. And that's the graffiti mentality. And then when I kind of stopped graffiti and I got into street art, I still adopted that attitude. It was like, I want my my artwork, my images, my letters in as many places I could possibly get them. Yeah. All over. Yeah. What what sort of what sort of inspired you? Because I always ask the same same sort of question to, to artists. Um you know, I was doing research as well. This is another question I was going to say. Are you really 50 years of age? I am 40. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, yeah. I'm 51. Uh, yeah, next month. Because you, you don't come across as, you, as you're 50. And, when, and I, when I listened to you as well, you've got so much youth still about you. And I, I couldn't believe it. When I saw your date of birth, I was like, at first I thought you were 40 because I'm r- rubbish at maths. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, he's, he's only five years older than me. I was like, hang on a minute. He's not. He's 50. This is, this is crazy, but actually quite inspiring. And you were saying the same story on, on that quote I just gave you to, to uh, a friend of yours. And a friend of yours went to you, after we get arrested and found guilty, are, are you going to continue doing your street art until so, you're 20, 30, 40, 50? And you yeah. are. So I used to write, well, I used to write with a load of different people, but uh, I remember sitting there with Elk, uh, PFB, WD, and me and him used to do a load of stuff together. And we were kind of like in our 20s, and like we'd been nicked a couple of times, and it was like, can you imagine if we're still doing this when we're 30? Can you imagine if we're still doing graffiti when we're 40? And it's like, dude, I'm 50 and I still paint trains. <clears throat> and it's like, you know, we can't run away anymore, but, you know, we still paint stuff. <laughs> we just have lookouts and walkie-talkies. And Is it um, also true, doing my research again, that the White House, President Barack Obama actually has a piece of your art in the White House or, or the or the new president does? So David Cameron, when he got turned into the Prime Minister, Obama was like the President of America. And for some weird reason, they'd agreed to do an art exchange. And I'd done this job with Anya Heinmark. She makes like posh handbags and she was good friends with Samantha Cameron and then I did this project in Middlesex Street like Petticoat Lane where I painted all the letters of the alphabet over shop shutters but I did them in like alphabetical order it was a nightmare it took two years to organize blah blah and then the observer did a double page spread so I imagine David Cameron lying in bed at 10 Downing Street with Samantha and going, oh, we're going to do an art exchange. Oh, look at this. This is quite interesting. And then Samantha goes, oh, yes, he's worked with Annie Heinmark. I can get his telephone number. So they bail me up and they're like, uh, we're looking for a painting to give to the most important man in the world. And uh, long story short, I gave them a painting and it was in the White House for eight years. And 
when Barack Obama left the White House, his daughter really liked the painting. So apparently it's in her bedroom in Chicago, wherever they live. That's amazing. I mean, yeah. what a good, good bit of um, sort of history that you, you've you got there and uh, the providence of that piece now is yeah. next level. Yeah, it was insane. And then like a couple of months later, Downing Street bailed me up and was like, David and Samantha would like to say thank you. Would you like to come to Downing Street? So I went to Downing Street and had like, I literally thought they were going to whisk me in, <clears throat> take a photograph of me with David and Samantha and then kick me out. And literally four hours later, I was still there eating Kit Kats with David Cameron and Samantha. And then, what was his name? Andy Colston, the guy that got nicked for tapping. He was editor of uh, News of the World. Right. And he got he got sent to prison <laughs> for phone tapping Millie Downer, Prince Charles's. So anyway, at the time, he was David Cameron's head of communication. Right. So he walked into the room and he said, David, dinner with Berlusconi. We've got to leave. Berlusconi was like the Italian prime minister. And then David Cameron said to Samantha, don't worry, Andy's going to pull me out the sauna before the hookers turn up and walked out the door. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. I what? literally can't believe you just yeah. said that in front of me. <laughs> yeah. What have I just heard? Yeah. So you're basically mates with David Cameron. No, I'm not mates with him <laughs> at all. I met him once. Yeah, I just met him once. Could you call him up right now if you wanted to? No, he's blocked me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. After that interview, he definitely blocked me. <laughs> All right. Um, so, so go, going back to um, basically that soundbite I listened to on one of your one of your interviews. I mean, twenty at, at your twenties, thirties, forties. I think you was about forty when you done that interview, and now now you're fifty, yeah. nearly turning fifty one. Do you sometimes pinch yourself and think I'm still in this sector, and I'm obviously making a great brand from myself? I've toured the world. And do you know what? You've inspired so many people because it's not just other artists you've inspired, Ben, but I think people in different walks of life, you are that epitome of if you want to go and do something and you're passionate, just go and fucking do it. I think you've got that kind of kind of vibe about you. I think what's important for me is like when I was a kid, I was literally about 14 or something and I was walking down the King's Road and I went into WH Smith's and on the shelf was this book called Subway Art. And I picked up this book and I'd never seen anything like it. I didn't know that graffiti and trains and this insane thing was going on somewhere else in the world that's like six hours on an airplane. And this book became my Bible and it inspired me and it changed the course of my life. And I'm now really good friends with the two people that made the book, Martha Cooper and Henry Chalfont. And... In some way, I would like to inspire somebody in a way that my artwork or what I do changes the course of their life. And in 20, 30 years' time, they're being interviewed and they go, I was walking through Shoreditch and I saw this Ben Iron piece and it changed the course of my life. And that's what I wanted to do. And that's what that book did for me. And, yeah, if I could do that to some some little kid who then turns into an artist, then I've done my job. Yeah. Um, I, I, I definitely believe you've done that. Um, a little bit of synergy between myself and you. This is part of the reason why I'm, I do podcasts. So when I was uh, in school, 
I had rubbish grades. I couldn't really concentrate. It wasn't really for me. I never slacked off, though. That's one thing I can always say. I never bunked off of school. I never bunked off what, school either. Whereas my brother did a couple <laughs> of times. But I was... I was just like you, Ben. I'm 35 years of age, and this was before social media, and this is really before people were using the internet a lot. And now looking back, I thought, I thought to myself, if people were listening to podcasts or YouTube interviews, they could have got a bit of inspiration, direction, and maybe a bit of motivation. So now I like to interview people which are not just cross-pollinating into the art market, but boxers, obviously I do boxing, yeah. footballers, athletes, entrepreneurs, go-getters, anyone's got a bit of a story which is going to motivate people, this is why I do it. And I feel that... Like so many of these people, they've come you've got from that nothing. Story. Yeah. They've come from nothing. Like, I left school at 15. Like, my old man was a cab driver. My mum was a mum. Like, I ain't got no silver spoon. You know, I worked hard. I had a passion. I had a belief and motivation. And if you have those things, you ain't going to get paid immediately. Like, never think that. But at some point, if you stick to what you know is right, even if everyone's telling you what you're doing is wrong, even if you're getting arrested, even if they're just sending you to prison, if you believe in what you do and you have a passion, it will pan out in the end. And you're, you're, you're a testament to that. Yeah, I am. Like, you know, I'm not poor. I have a good life. I do interesting things. I work with, like, loads of charities. I reinvest my time and my skills in trying to help people and trying, like, when I was a kid, I had no idea there was a man that stood behind the camera and filmed a television show. I had no idea that there was a man that did the lights or there was a girl that did the makeup or there was a woman that picked the clothes for the people to wear. Like, like the way that I was brought up, like, I just didn't understand that. Yeah. And, you know, as much as I can, I'd like to open people's eyes and say, you have the opportunity to do anything you want to do. And these jobs are available. And if you're creative, passionate, and you have a drive, you could do anything. I, I believe that certainly, certainly to be true. So the projects you've done in Abu Dhabi, yeah. where you were um, uh, painting over the embassy, and it yeah. was meant to be only partially... Um, up, up for a short amount of time and then eventually they got it past the day where it was kept up permanently. <laughs> what was that like? Because Abu Dhabi, I've been to Dubai quite a few times because I do a bit of business over there. And Abu Dhabi is the more powerful side of the UAE. However, it's a bit more conservative. You could see Dubai kind of doing it, maybe, but not really in Abu Dhabi. But you've just completely ripped out that rule book. So how did that How did that go about? Come uh, I was doing a show in Dubai and... Uh, I can't remember the name of the gallery. But the the family that own the gallery are good friends with Sheikh Nahim, who's Abu Dhabi. And because of, you know, the British helped, you know, the UAE, blah, 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 so much back <coughs> in the days. So somehow David Cameron, whatever, we got the opportunity to paint the outside wall of the British Embassy. And I was like, yeah. And, like, we had all these girls turn up from calligraphy. So also in the UAE, calligraphy is like an in crazy, insane art form where they study it. It's a bit like, you know, Japanese calligraphy. So we had all these girls come down and they helped us do the paint. And then Sheikh Naheem came down. And it was just, yeah, it was insane. 
I like, it was. And I love, like, we were staying in this hotel around the corner and, like, sunrise, you just hear, like, the call to prayer. And I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> like, one of the most beautiful things about my job is I get to travel the world and I see. And I try really hard not to judge. And I try really hard to just experience different cultures and... You know, you read stuff in the newspaper and it's like, it's nonsense, it's nonsense. But you actually go there, you meet people, you talk to people. And I'm really big on doing that. I think, I think you know, I, I, I said to you, Ben, just off air, I mean, I'm not from a textbook art background. I found myself right place, right time scenario. And I ran with an opportunity. And between me and my business partner, Joe, you're going to meet in a sec. Um, we obviously got Woodbury House here. And then we also got the property company. Now, both of them, from a financial aspect, can make you quite successful. Mm. But property, really and truly, it's not a global kind of thing. You either you probably stick in one area and 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 you, and you well, do you do. Stick, you stick with what you know exactly. Any place you know. But with with art, what I love about it and what I've been so fascinated with is the stories by the artists. But then all all the people that go into that melting pot. You can have someone who's a big high flyer, some corporate guy or female who is you know, buying into art, collecting art, investing into art. And then you've got some regular person from a different walk of life also collecting the same amount of art and they're all in the same room. And that doesn't really happen in many other things. Maybe yeah. music, but bar music and maybe a bit of fashion and art doesn't really happen in a, a, yeah. any other market. Is that what you love about what you do? It's interesting because, you know, like I paint stuff on the street for nothing and I do loads of charity work for nothing to raise awareness, to raise money, blah, blah, blah. And then I sell things for like 20, 30 grand. So it's the fact that I've got myself into this position where I can sell paintings that enables me to live the lifestyle that I want to live. And the lifestyle that I want to live isn't driving around in a BMW. It's getting the bus and pedal bike. And having the free time to do interesting projects. Yeah, saying true, true to your to your your cause and well, to your to your roots. Yeah, I I just feel that I'm in a position where I could either make a load of money and drink champagne and sniff cocaine on a beach somewhere, or I can actually do something positive. And I'd rather do something positive because I I passionately believe that. The people that are in charge of us, the governments, are doing a really, really shit job at looking after social care, looking after people that need help, and they're just ignoring everybody. And I'd like to, in you know, my small way, do something for the better. Yeah, we was having a conversation just before you came into the studio that um, I, I do boxing. You know, I've, yeah. I'm still at active at the moment i haven't fought in a, about a year and a half but I'm, I'm planning to again i'll have a fight with you outside if you want we can do that if you want yeah we'll get up we'll get that on camera we can turn it into a bit of art we can turn it into an nft uh, anyway and um you know part of the reason why i do it is because there's a club called bromley and downham which is very close to my heart when i was in at 14 years of age i went into that boxing club and it completely changed my mindset and it also yeah. gave me confidence and it's nearly shut down twice because of lack of funding and what I I done a bit of research, and when boxing communities come out of certain areas, knife crime and gang crime certainly go up through the roof. And yeah. I know you're a big supporter of charities, specifically homeless and also knife crime. Yeah. And I believe that if they bought 
boxing back into schools, it would certainly give people a lot more respect, a lot more understanding about each other rather than thinking, okay, someone says something bad to me, I either need to hurt them or stab them or challenge them with a with, with a weapon. So um, well, it's, it's like there's this mentality at the moment where like, you know, young inner city kids or whatever, they're scared. So they feel that they have to protect themselves. And the way that you protect yourself is like carry a screwdriver or carry a knife. Mm. And then you get into some argy-bargy and you wind up lashing out. And then you've got the next seven years in prison. Yeah. Because you got angry, because you were scared. And it's like so many of these people, like, they're not gang leaders. They're scared children. Yeah. That feel that they have to protect themselves. Yeah. And then something happens and then seven years in Brixton. And it's... The self of belonging, I know it's not the right belonging in the right type of family, but let's be fair, if you don't have a very good background, very good upbringing, maybe a bit of a broken home, and you find yourself in this new so-called family where they're saying, right, we need to rob, we need to stab, we need to take over. Exactly. Before you know it, they just feel that that's the right thing to do or their only option. And I think, again, boxing won't completely eradicate it. I don't think you can, but I think if if boxing was put back into communities, so many of these people, their mindset and the way they live in their life begins to shift. It gives them a sense of self-worth, which they don't have at the moment because they've been excluded and ostracised and tarnished by the press and the way that police treat these people. You know, they just feel beaten and, yeah, hopeless. And, you know, there's not many ways out of that kind of game. Mm. Once you get into it, there's like music, sport, you know, or, you know, serving up. Yeah, yeah. Um, We're talking about kind of like certain scenarios on the streets. So let's bring it back to the art. Um, I've interviewed a few people, you know, uh, Crash, Days, Out Diaz, LA2, Remy Ruff. Um, another one. <laughs> is he another one who doesn't like you? <laughs> uh, Nathan Bowen and a few other people, which you're, you're probably Nathan's quite... a lovely man. Yeah, he's really, really nice. Very articulate. I think he's a uh, hardworking guy. And it's nice to see, like, a British artist still out there and, and doing, his, doing his stuff. I think he's a, I think he's a cool guy. Um, I Like I said to you before, I feel like I'm a bit sick in the head because what I do love is, yes, the art and the reason why you do it and all that kind of stuff, but the stories, because you guys have got some real-life stories where there might have been hairy moments, there might have been moments where you thought, maybe my life's in danger or I'm going to get arrested. Have you got anything like that, Ben? Anything, Any juicy stuff that you can share with the audience? Yeah, loads. <laughs> any, any you want to share? I'll tell you what, right? I, 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 I my lawyers on speak. <laughs> I don't incriminate yourself. <laughs> I asked uh, Alan Ketz the same question, and he was talking about some of the, the the fights that he had, and there was guns and knives involved. And obviously, so the, like, he, like, like we were never really fighters. Like we were taggers, and we just used to like just run around and tag stuff and have a laugh and like. We used to go, like, like when we were kids, we used to go nightclubs like the Mud Club or Raw or City of Angels, and then you just hook up with a load of people, and they'd be like, yeah, we're going to party in Alexander Palace. And you're like, I don't want to go to Alexander Palace. However, I got a skateboard and a rucksack full of spray paint, 
and I will gladly walk from Alexander Palace back to Lewisham just so I can tag all the way home. Okay. So we used to do nonsense like that. Yeah. I mean, there must have been, so even if you weren't involved with certain things, there might have been certain scenarios that some of the artists have told me before that they'll be doing something and then suddenly a fight will break out or one of their pals got hit by a train because they were dubbing up the side of the wall. Anything like that? Uh, a friend of mine had his arm ripped off. Really? Completely? Yeah, yeah on the shoulder. And you saw it? No, I wasn't there. Oh, right. <laughs> and did he survive? Yeah, yeah. He learned to paint with his left hand. You just have to help him over the fences because it's not every, so good at Every climbing. cloud? <laughs> every- <laughs> yeah, he would be ambidextrous if he had two arms. Uh, yeah, there's, you know, there's been accidents and executions and, you know, people going to prison and... And it's like, really? Like, seriously, at the end of the day, right? And, like, I'd like to have this conversation, like... So the other day I got this letter through my door... And it was handwritten envelope, and I thought it was a birthday card for my mum. The only reason I opened it, and it was a letter from British Transport Police. And they were like, uh, we'd like to invite you for an interview. Uh, we found your DNA evidence on a balaclava found in the train yard on the 18th of April or something. So I phoned up my people, and I was like, what did we do on the 18th of April? And like, no one could remember what we did. So I went down there and had an interview. And I was like, show me the photos. And they show me these photos. And I was like, that's not us. And it wasn't me. My a balaclava just happened to be in the train yard with my DNA on it. Uh, and they showed me the invoice for cleaning off the graffiti. So it was basically like a window down whole car and then some fielding frats and some tags. And it was £239. And I'm like... You've come round my house, two of you. You've then sent me a letter, and I'm now sitting in here with you for two hours. I was like, I will go to the cash machine and get the money out for you. I will just pay for it. Like, what? Why are we? Why are we doing this? Like, it costs so little to clean it off nowadays. Yeah. Like, why are you like investigating these people? Mm. Why not do something a little bit more interesting where you pay us? to paint the trains, you know, we'll do advertising, blah, blah, blah. We'll be creative. We'll do workshops. We'll get kids. We'll take them from inner city, running around tagging stuff, paint trains for them. And it costs you 250 quid to clean it off. Like run it for a month. Yeah. Everyone's happy. Yeah. Like, why are you like turning us into criminals when you could work with these creative, interesting young people and get them out of trouble and offer an opportunity for them to do something creative and to move forward and actually turn this into a job rather than turn it into a crime. I um, I went to a school, secondary school, called Langley Park School School for Boys, if I remember that right. And it was at Eden Park. Mm. And um, there used to be a guy, two guys that used to go to my school. You might even know them, I'm thinking. One was called Kia, yeah. uh, tag name, and one was called Swag. Right. And they actually got endorsed by the local community to actually um, uh, do some artwork on the whole entire train station. Yeah. And I've got to tell you, it was mind-blowing. Even old grannies who were walking by who used to say, uh, you know, it's graffiti everywhere, they were admiring it because it was done properly without yeah. without the risk of them getting fined or arrested. Yeah. 
There's opportunities, and like if people stop like criminalizing what we do and graffiti and realize that all we're doing is changing the color of something. And if you don't like it, you know what you do. Paint over it. Paint over it. Yeah, I heard that when no you said that. No one cares. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Like, it's not that offensive. Yeah. Um, so I gave you a bit of a small story how I got into the art market. I was approached by a big art dealer and we started with the Hamilton uh, sector. I've got to tell you, I wasn't a big, I was a passive art sort of interest. I had a bit of an interest in it, but I wasn't, you know, immersed into it like I am now. And when I heard Hamilton's story, the Shadow Man documentary, the trailer, which I watched, which is on Amazon Prime, I've got to tell you, I thought it was the most legendary story I've ever heard. And then end up buying a piece. My dad bought a piece with me and it was fantastic. And bearing in mind, my dad's an old school geezer. He, you know, he doesn't like, he was a double glazer, you know, never into art. And the moment he saw it, it was like, oh, these are blinding, aren't they? Yeah. And then we ended up buying one. And anyway, on my journey, I started realizing, well, um, Hamilton was affiliated with Jean-Michel Basquiat and Keith Haring. Jean-Michel Basquiat used to tag uh, Samo with yeah. another guy called Out Diaz. Yeah. So I connected to Out Diaz and interviewed him. Um, Keith Haring used to work alongside uh, Ortiz, um, LA2. Have you? Yes. Original? Yeah. Amazing. I'll tell you the story. Go on. So, a friend of mine, Drax, did a party in 1989 in Vauxhall. And a friend of mine, Barnsley, who weirdly, we FaceTimed him, he's mad. He was mates with Keith Haring. Keith Haring was in London, hooked up with Barnsley. Barnsley took in the Drax's party. Drax and all them lot, graffiti writers, get Keith Haring to tag the wall. Drax, because he's not stupid, <coughs> goes back in the morning and cuts this piece of plasterboard out the wall, has it under his bed for 20 years. Drax is like a football fan, wants to go to Brazil for the World Cup. Everyone knows that Drax has got Keith Haring under his bed. <laughs> so Drax bells me up. He's like, do you want to buy a Haring? I was like, yeah, how much? He said 15 grand. I was like, I'll give you 10 and I'll give you two later when I sell a painting. So it was like, all right, sweet. So I transferred Drax five grand. And I was married at the time. And my wife, she was uh, ex-wife, she's a lawyer. She saw my bank statement and she was like, why have you paid A. Hayes? You're going to have to delete that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> beep, beep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why have you paid uh, Mork so and, and Mindy? So and so. <laughs> so and so. Yeah. Why have you paid Mork and Mindy £5,000? And I showed her a picture of what I'd bought. And she's like, you've paid £5,000 for a fucking doodle. And I was like, no. Actually, £12,000 <laughs> for a fucking doodle. <laughs> anyway, as soon as I bought it, someone offered me like 30 for it. And you sold it? No. Oh, yeah. How much do you think it's worth today? One million. I've got no idea. Probably one million. Sell it. Yeah, I wouldn't sell it. Well, anyway, I mean, that's an incredible story. As I was getting to, so I realised there's another guy called LA2. So I, started, I, I interviewed him. And then Hamilton had a, um, a tenant called Days. So we'd done a show with yeah. him. He'd done um, a mural in Soho and one in um, East. And then we'd done a show in uh, just around the corner from here. Dude, if you can get us walls, we'll be up for painting some stuff. Wicked. All right. And with our types, we represent a load of really, really amazing creative artists. <laughs> doing the sales pitch. <laughs> no, we've literally got like 20 artists that we work with. Okay. Like Nibone, quality. Yeah. 
Well, you know, afterwards, let's, let's, let's definitely talk about a project together. Anyway, what I was trying to get to is I started finding out there's this big ecosystem around, around not just obviously Hambleton, but so many of these other artists. And then I watched a, a documentary called Banks in the Rise of Outlaw Art, and I saw Alan Ketz on there, and I was like, this this guy is very, very cool. I need to get him on the podcast because he's very articulate. And then you were on there a bunch of times. And I obviously knew your work because I'm good friends with Maximilian Cooper who runs yeah. Gumball Rally. I was there last night. He's actually been in my podcast as well. And we're doing the, the, the rally next year, which I can't wait. Um, and I've always known your work, but I hadn't really listened to you speak before. And I, I heard you on there. I was like, this guy knows his stuff. So this is what's led me, led me I to you. So... <laughs> so so the question I was going to get to, uh, the reason why I've said all that stuff is from when you started to now, 2021, how have you seen the landscape of graffiti, street art and contemporary art changing and evolving? How have you witnessed that and how have you been a part of that? Uh, like when we were doing graffiti, it was just graffiti. Like, everyone hated us, and we tagged things, and it wasn't artistic, it wasn't creative. You know, there were some graffiti writers that were doing, like, productions, you know, mode, trailblazers, common garden, whatever. Uh, but the graffiti that we were doing was just... It was just kids writing their name mm. in as many places as you could, as in, in the most ugly way that you could. And then... You know, we got older and we matured and we wanted to do something a little bit more creative. <clears throat> and then I think graffiti reached a point where it couldn't go any further. And that's the time when street art was born. And street art took kind of graffiti to a way more commercial, viable, sellable profitable option yeah basically and you know i've seen like you know you know this is my job this is how i earn my money yeah so i pay my mortgage and you know pay off my rolls royce installments <laughs> <laughs> you know it's, it's turned into a job so the opportunities and you know like you know Advertisers, property developers, councils, you know, they all want to work with these people because we inject some colour and some interest into boring grey walls. Yeah. And, you know, people aren't scared of street art in the way that they were scared of graffiti back in the days. Like, you used to tag the road and, like, You'd be like, oh, if they can tag that wall, then that means they can break into my car and steal my radio. And if they can break into my car and steal my radio, that means they can rape my daughter. And it's like, no, we're literally just writing our name on a wall. Yeah. Like the rest of the nonsense we're not interested in. We're just trying to get our names up and not get arrested. But people had that mentality about graffiti. And now with graffiti, you know, now with street art, it's like they don't have that mentality. They're like, oh my God, there's a Benign thing or... Oh my God, there's a stick thing. You know, there's a black, you know, people are interested in it and they find it fascinating. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Talk, talk about the, the financial side of it, uh, Ben, because um, some people, some people sort of ignore the fact that the art market is a tradable asset and some people don't like it. And some people actually relish under the fact that art can go up in value. 
I wanted to see your take on it. I mean, should art be used as a financial instrument or should it be something to enjoy? Uh, I personally think art should be something to enjoy. Uh, I've bought pieces that are worth a lot of money uh, and I wouldn't sell them. So I invest in art or I buy art or I trade art with friends of mine because I like the art. And I want to have it hanging on my wall. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, it's an unregulated stock market, so people. Are... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's yeah, the phone you know, Yeah, it's an unregulated <laughs> stock market, so you know, there's there's billions of pounds, dollars to be made in it. Yeah. By buying and selling art. Yeah. You know, it's like the nature of the game. It's like it's not part of the game that I'm in, but. It's the secondary benefit yeah, of it. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned a few people there, yourself, uh, Black, the Rat, um, and also Stick. And I remember Stick's work, you know, many years ago. Uh, obviously, it used to be all over Shoreditch, and it still is now. And um, then I started seeing Christage, Phillips, and Suburbiz doing auctions for him. And then suddenly, pieces are going for like over 100 grand. Yeah. I'm like, where did that all come from? It was almost like out the blue, I, I felt. Um you know, when you see people that you know and their works are going for that amount of money, how, how does it kind of make you feel? Happy for them. That's good. Yeah, good. completely and utterly happy for them because they've worked hard. They've put the time in. And he's an amazing dude. And yeah. he does so much for the community, for projects, like... He works really, really hard. So I'm just un unbelievably happy for him. Yeah, he reached out to me when I'd uh, done the interview with LA2 because them guys have done a collaboration yeah. together. And I think he's got a lot of respect for uh, for, for, for him. And uh, we were chatting a few times over it. And uh, yeah, I found him such a nice guy. Very, very genuine. Yeah, yeah, he's really genuine. And, you know, he definitely hasn't had the most perfect background and he's come through and he shines. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm just really proud of him. Yeah, powerful stuff. Yeah. Um, I know I mentioned to you about uh, Richard Hambleton, and I always like to ask the artists, like, what do they think about Hambleton? Because when I spoke to Black the Rat, he said that out of all the artists who are alive or even dead, he still thinks he's the best street artist that's ever lived. He's been dubbed by the New York Times as the godfather street art. And, and ironically, Black the Rat, I think he was dubbed as the godfather stencil art. That was what he was known as uh, yeah. in, in Paris. So I just want you to see your take on maybe people like Black, uh, Richard Hamilton. Uh, do you even know much about his works? And have you actually been familiar with his works before? So when I used to go to New York, there's this bar that we used to go into and there was a Hamilton piece on the wall that was painted before it turned into this swanky nonsense bar. And it's now behind Perspex. And I was like, what is this? This is like, and then like did a bit of research, which I always find interesting. It's like, why I don't write Ben Iron, whatever, hashtag Instagram or website on my paintings because I like people to like investigate and find out. And I did some research and found out about Richard Hamilton. And I was like, dude, this gangster. Like, <laughs> and then, yeah. And then with Black, it was like, you know, I remember going Paris in like, the early 80s and just like everything was covered in stencils and they had this like real political kind of stencil game going on 
And that's kind of where Black comes from. And it was like, yeah, he was one of the original stencil writers. And he's definitely influenced Banksy in a way. And I also believe that Banksy took the kind of shit and naive stuff that was coming out of Paris in those times and turned it into something a lot more intricate and a lot more artistic and more of an art form. Yeah. There's definitely an influence. There's there's like a lineage, isn't there? Like, you know, you can't deny the fact that that's influenced that and that's influenced that. But it's like you, you take your influence and you turn it into something that's you. And that's what Banksy did. Yeah. And uh, I think you said, and it's been said on one of the documentaries for Banksy, that there are no, no rules in art. There should be no rules in art. There should be no rules in music. There should be no rules in yeah. fashion. You take whatever you need to take and, and make it your own, as you just said. But you can't sample James Brown. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listen, we've got to go. Yeah. We've got a thing to paint, haven't we? All right, cool. Yeah. Right, I want to ask you one more question, then, uh, Ben. All right. So I um, I came up with a, a quote when I first got into sales, which is called Be Happy, Never Content. So I've got my own interpretation of it, but I want to ask you your interpretation of what does Be Happy, Never Content mean to you? Clean your teeth and have more sex. I always thought the same, mate. <laughs> <laughs> All right, nice one. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for your time. Uh, if you're listening, listening to this, please follow Ben. Look out for uh, his next projects. And if you're loving my podcast, please refer it to friends and family and be happy, never content. Thank you. And clean your teeth. That's it. All right. Cool. Amazing. Amazing.